This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. This is the American dream of freedom on wheels. An automotive age traveling on time-saving superhighways. Futurama's the 1940s, 50s, and 60s were the golden age of road travel. Cars had become cheap and roomy enough to carry families comfortably for hundreds of miles. The interstate highway system had started to connect the country's smaller roads into a vast nationwide network. Finally, tourists could make their way from New York to California with the windows down and the wind in their hair, seeing the grandeur of America along the way. We have become the nation on wheels, with more motorized mobility than ever dreamed of before. But, of course, this freedom and mobility wasn't available to everyone. That's our brand new producer and splash of cold water, Delaney Hall. Because in 1956, the year that federal funding made the interstate highway system possible, Jim Crow was still the law of the land. In the South, racial segregation was enforced by law and had been since shortly after Reconstruction. In many parts of the North, the codes were enforced in practice. And these codes could make a simple road trip really complicated for black travelers. How is this? Is that a good level? Is, are you picking me up well there? This is Curtis Graves. Okay, my name is Curtis Graves, and I was born in 1938, so I'm a little older than most of the people who are listening to this. <laughs> Curtis would eventually become a Texas state representative, and then he'd go on to work at NASA, and then he'd become a photographer. But as a kid, he grew up in the segregated South. And for many years, his parents tried to shield him from that reality. I've often said that both my mother and father were the best liars that I knew. For instance, we sat in the back of the bus because it was cooler there. We rode in the front of the train because uh, you could get off quicker. We sat upstairs in the movie because you had better seats in the upstairs. Of course, that ruse couldn't last. And by the time Curtis was a college senior in Houston, Texas, in the mid-1950s, he was fully aware of what it meant to be a black person living under Jim Crow. There's one experience in particular that stands out in his mind. He was just 21 years old and getting ready to drive to a college meeting in Waco, about three hours northwest of Houston. He'd agreed to take a couple of acquaintances. They happened to be white women. I said to myself, hmm, I might be in for some difficult times here, but, uh, you know, I, I had to soldier on. To get to Waco, Curtis had to drive through a stretch of East Texas that was notorious in those decades for racial violence. Oh yeah, those communities were pretty bad. Around dusk, the travelers got hungry, so they pulled over at a roadside diner. As soon as we got in the front door, the guy said, Ah, uh, I'm sorry, but you can't come in here. We don't serve black people at all. So the three of them went back outside, and Curtis devised a plan. They'd try another restaurant, right across the street. I said to them, the two of you go in, get a table, and after you're seated and the waiter or waitress comes up to you, tell them that you have a boy that's driving you and that you want to know whether he can, you can bring him in to eat. So the women walked inside and they asked the waitress if Curtis could come inside to join them. And the lady said, of course, no problem at all. 
So as long as I was their boy and their driver, uh, I could eat with them at a table in a restaurant, but if I were equal to them, I could not. This kind of humiliation on the road was routine and had been going on for decades. Many people wrote into the NAACP around this time, describing experiences just like Curtis's. To whom it may concern, before starting our recent vacation trip to several eastern states... Dear sir, I, I am a member of the NAACP and an accord... I would like to report an incident occurring on January 1st at a golf service station in Macon, Georgia. My wife and I My went to the restrooms to refresh ourselves, then found a vacant table. Ten minutes passed and no one came to service. He informed me that the restroom for the colored was in the back. It seems to me dealers should not be permitted to sell gas and oil and not provide these comforts for us also. Some travelers would drive all night instead of trying to find lodging in an unfamiliar and possibly dangerous town. They'd pack picnics so they didn't have to stop for food. Some people would even carry portable toilets in the trunks of their cars, knowing that there was a good chance they'd be turned away from roadside restrooms. But since 1936, a guy named Victor Hugo Green had been trying to help with some of these problems to make life easier for thousands of black motorists. State by state, he'd been putting together a travel guide with listings of restaurants, hotels, and service stations that would welcome African-American travelers. He called it the Negro Motorist Green Book. The Green Book, for short. Victor Green, who died in 1960, lived in Harlem, New York during the height of the Harlem Renaissance. His apartment was not far from Duke Ellington's. His office would eventually be situated near Small's Paradise, a famous nightclub. Victor didn't have the most obvious background for starting a travel guide. He didn't work in tourism. He wasn't a writer. He was a mailman in Hackensack, New Jersey. But he kept hearing stories about discrimination on the road. So he would go do his route in Hackensack, New Jersey, come back home and work on a green book at night, compiling these addresses, typing them up, and putting them in a book form. This is Calvin Alexander Ramsey. Playwright, author, and filmmaker. And years ago, Calvin started researching the history of the green book. He learned that the green book wasn't really the first guide of its kind. In fact, Victor may have gotten the idea from Jewish travelers because the Jewish community was also having uh, issues on the open road with a lot of the places saying restricted, and that was a code word for Gentiles only. When Victor published his first green book, it just covered New York. And he heard from around the country from other carriers and other people saying, we really need this nationwide. But it wasn't that easy to gather information from across the country back then. Long-distance phone calls were expensive. And that, Calvin says, is when Victor Green realized that being a mailman was his secret superpower. There were African-American letter carriers all over the United States at this time. We're talking about 1936. And so he knew about, you know, the relationships that the mailmen have with their homeowners or, or apartment dwellers delivering their mail. So just like today, the mailman is part of the community. So Calvin says Victor tapped into this network, spreading the word about his guide through the National Alliance of Postal and Federal Employees, a letter carrier union. 
Calvin says postal workers across the country scouted potential Green Book locations in their cities and towns. He says some even asked families they delivered to if they'd be open to hosting travelers in their homes. And if they agreed, then they would send the information to Victor Green in Harlem. Victor was able to get a feel force of letter carriers who were all over the country who acquired materials and names and addresses and businesses for him. Wherever there was a black mailman, you had a Green Book salesman or recruiter. Pretty quickly, the Green Book caught on. Businesses, many black-owned, began getting in touch with Victor, hoping to advertise and hoping to be listed. Black newspapers signed on as sponsors. Victor eventually retired from his job as a letter carrier and started working on the guide full-time. He even opened an affiliated travel agency that helped tourists arrange trips. But still, there was the challenge of distribution. How to get the guide into the hands of travelers who needed it. That happened in a few ways. The United States Travel Bureau signed on to help out. And then there were the more informal networks. Well, churches, Pullman Porters, the Urban League, the NAACP, the Masonic Lodges. There was a a very wide, varied uh, distribution process in place for these green books. And there was an important corporate sponsor, too. A big one. For service that is tops and gas that's extra fine. There's a smile for every mile at the S-O sign. E-S-S-O makes your car go happy motoring. S-O, also known as Standard Oil and now known as ExxonMobil, was one of the few oil companies back then that actively pursued black customers. They franchised their stations to African-American operators, and they had a black representative on staff, James Billboard Jackson, who helped place green books in many of those stations, as well as the white-owned ones. S-O may have done this out of a sense of fairness and equality. John D. Rockefeller, who founded Standard Oil in 1870, had married into a family of abolitionists who were part of the Underground Railroad, and he'd voted for Abraham Lincoln back in the day. But Esso probably did it for another reason, too. Money, honey. It has to do with money. Remember Curtis, who had the crappy experience driving across East Texas? His dad operated one of the first black-owned Esso stations in New Orleans, where Curtis was born and raised. It was called Bootsy and Buddies. The economic logic of stocking the Green Book was pretty simple, he says. If you want black people to buy your fuel, why don't you give them an opportunity to see that they can travel and find places to stay while they're on the road traveling. So Curtis's dad kept a shelf of green books for his customers. You know, if somebody came in and said, uh, uh, buddy, I'm, I'm thinking about taking a trip to Chicago, my dad would say, well, you, do you know where to stop between here and Chicago? And uh, the person would say, no. He'd say, well, here, the green book will tell you. And it gave you a, a sense of, of security. And so the Green Book came to cover listings in all 50 states and even some locations in Canada, the Caribbean, and Mexico. They printed about 15,000 copies a year. Victor Green had changed travel for thousands of African-American tourists. He wrote in a 1956 introduction to the guide. Now, things are different. The Negro traveler can depend on the Green Book for all the information he wants. This guide has made traveling more popular without encountering embarrassing situations. 
But as the civil rights struggle continued, some people began to question the value of the Green Book. Black people, many of them, began to feel that this was accommodating to Jim Crow. Susan Rue is a professor of history at Brigham Young University. And she says that the Green Book began to seem a little out of step with the times. It rarely took on an overtly political tone, especially in its early days. And there were actually other black travel guides published around the same time that did. One called Travel Guide, for instance. Travel Guide listed where the NAACP chapters were in each city. They were much more attuned with civil rights, much more political tone. Eventually, the NAACP made it clear. And the NAACP said, what we're striving for, we're striving for integration. And so that's their stand. And the NAACP built a lot of their push for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which outlawed discrimination based on race and ended Jim Crow around this idea of total integration. In fact, when the NAACP testified during the debate over the bill, they drew on all those letters they'd received about discrimination on the road. They appealed to that vision of the iconic family road trip, of the freedom to explore America by car. Roy Wilkins, the executive secretary of the NAACP, spoke before the Senate's Commerce Committee in 1963. As soon as Congress gets out, they're all going to head into their station wagons and go back to their home district. It's July in Washington. It's really hot. Wilkins asked the Senate to imagine what it might be like to travel as a black person. Would you like me to read what Roy Wilkins said? How far do you drive each day? Where and under what conditions can you and your family eat? Where can they use a restroom? Can you stop driving after a reasonable day behind the wheel? Or must you drive until you reach a city where relatives or friends will accommodate you and yours for the night? Will your children be denied a soft drink or an ice cream cone because they are not white? So he's appealing to them at the most basic level of their own love for their own family. And Susan thinks this may have been one of the things that helped pass the bill. By framing the narrative of civil rights as a family travel narrative, they were able to convince the senators to vote for the bill. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson signed the bill into law. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law and thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War 100 years ago. The Negro won his freedom then. He wins his dignity now. The civil rights struggle was not over then, and it's still not over today. But for Victor Green, it became clear at some point that his Green Book had a limited shelf life. He wrote in the introduction to one of his guides, There will be a day sometime in the near future this guide will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. And sure enough, two years after the Civil Rights Act passed, the Green Book published its last edition. So actually, could you just describe where we are? We're at the uh, public library downtown, the central branch in Los Angeles. And uh, we're down in the bowels for floors down, underground, in the history and genealogy department. And you have a stack 
of books there in front of you. What are those? Dude, they are green books. They're just little jewels. I mean, I just buzz with this kind of good energy that I just feel like, oh my God, they're actually here. It's amazing. It's amazing. Kendacy Taylor is a photographer and a cultural documentarian. The guides she's holding are small, maybe eight inches by five inches. They have green covers, each with a different destination featured, and there are pages and pages of listings inside. Let me see. There were beauty parlors, barbershops, um, tailors, taverns. There were nightclubs. It was really a social network. It was anything you might want to do in that town and the resources that were available to you. Candace has been traveling the country, documenting old Green Book locations from California to Oklahoma to New Mexico. Many establishments are now run by people who don't know much, if anything, about the police's history. Some of the buildings are gone, and what's left is just an empty lot or a patch of grass. Even these original copies of the guide are rare now. The Smithsonian bought one at auction recently. For $22,500. Wow. Yes. So look in your, if you're listening to this and you know your parents, you know, lived during Jim Crow, look in your attics and see, you might have a, you know, 20 plus thousand dollar guide. You, you never know. $20,000 is a lot of money. But back in 1936, when the Green Book first appeared and could be purchased for 25 cents by the travelers who needed it the most, it was arguably worth even more. Invisible was produced this week by Delaney Hall with Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, Kurt Colstead, Sharif Youssef, and me, Roman Mars. Thanks to Backstory with the American History Guys for the recordings of the letters to the NAACP, read by Alicia Floyd, Stephen Tolliver, and Leslie Talifario, and to Al Letson, who played the part of Victor Green. Thanks also to Orlando Gonzalez at the National Association of Letter Carriers and Jackie Moore at the National Alliance of Postal and Federal Employees. To find a link to Candace Taylor's images of old Green Book locations and learn more about Calvin Ramsey's film about the Green Book, visit 99pi.org. We are a production of 99% Invisible Inc., a project of KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. If you visit the brand new 99pi.org, you'll find new non-audio articles with all the things you love about 99pi without me prattling on. I'm really excited that we get to take on topics that are either too visual for the show or require such a quick turnaround that we just can't fit it into the audio show production schedule. But I also need to pay for it, and we're trying out display ads. So if you have access to the marketing funds of a cool design-minded company and like supporting original and fun journalism about design for just pennies of you, go to the sponsors page under the about menu at 99percentinvisible.org. It will be the best other people's money you've ever spent. invisible is supported by slack the best messaging app for teams 
Slack brings all of your communication at work into one place, integrating with the tools and services that you use every day. Their mission is to make people's working life simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. Instead of a hodgepodge of email, texts, and IMs, Slack brings all of your communication into specific channels that make sense and are easily searchable. 99PI just couldn't run without Slack at this point. We love it. I also use it for social interaction with my online friends. It's a little off-label use, but I really enjoy hanging out in a slightly less public place in an online community with people I like. Slack is free to use for as long as you want with as many users as you want, but they do have paid plans with additional features and more powerful functionality. Anyone who visits slack.com slash 99 will get $100 in credits they can use whenever they decide to upgrade to any paid plan. Seriously, it makes work better, it makes your life better and more fun. Go to slack.com slash 99. 99% Invisible is supported in part by Squarespace. Whether the story behind your passion is out of the ordinary or simply out of this world, you should tell it in an unforgettable way. Squarespace helps you do just that with the only websites designed to showcase what makes your passion worth pursuing. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com invisible. You should. Squarespace. And finally, this enterprise and Radiotopia would not have made it out of the larval stage without the support of MailChimp. This week on the 99PI MailChimp newsletter, we have an update of all the flag redesign efforts from around the country that followed my TED Talk about flags last year. There's a bunch of them. Subscribe to the 99PI MailChimp newsletter at 99pi.org, but if you want to send better email of your own, go to MailChimp.com. This week in Radiotopia, Leah Tao of Strangers talks to Elizabeth, who decided to give a kidney to a stranger. The most common reaction she got was, why on earth would you do that? But here's how Elizabeth sees it. I see it more as like almost like an obligation. I've been describing it like jury duty. There's 100,000 people out there waiting for kidneys and people dying every day, where if it was just like jury duty, when your number came up, you'd either get approved or not approved, and you'd either do it or you wouldn't, and it would just be like expected. You know, and when you start talking that way, then people kind of get defensive and, you know, like, well, jury duty, that's way different than kidneys. Hear part one and part two of Elizabeth and Mary on The Strangers Podcast. You can find a link to it and all the podcasts in Radiotopia at radiotopia.fm. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. We're all on Twitter, Instagram, and Spotify. But the best way to explore the 99% invisible activity that shapes the design of our world is to go to 99pi. Radiotopia.